Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. So before we start, just let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the eternal truths that guide us day by day. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, your precious Son, and the sureness of his presence in our lives. Teach us how to turn to you so that your thoughts may become our thoughts and your ways become our ways. Open our hearts and minds and listen to listen and to obey your precious word. May the, mouth, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen. Let's start by turning to uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 49. One of the criminals who hanged rallied at him saying, Are you not the Christ? And if you are, save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Blessed be the word of God. The sermon that, or the talk that I like to give this morning is called Seven Principles from the Cross. What can we learn from the cross? Many years ago, I had a friend, a senior pastor, who in his younger days, gave away the ministry completely. And only in his latter years did he come back to the ministry as an itinerant preacher. And I got to know him fairly well. And I asked him, what was it? What was the one thing that helped him in his ministry? He suffered from burnout and he worked in various jobs, but the hand of God was always upon this man. And he said to me, he said, the one thing I've learned over many, many years, which is so dear and near to me, is that God gave me the revelation of the cross. And he said, that revelation has kept me going in these last years of my life. He ministered for about 10 years as an itinerant minister, and then he passed away. But that revelation of the cross was always with him, and that was his central message. And I learned a lot from that man's words, and I thought to myself, what is the centrality of Christianity? The centrality of Christianity is Jesus Christ. What is the centrality of Jesus' life? And the centrality of Jesus' life is the cross of Jesus. 
You know, that is the fundamental thing. We walk past churches, we come into auditoriums, we come into sanctuaries, and we often see the cross. But I think we need to look at the cross and see what has that cross accomplished. And it has accomplished enormous amount for you and me. So the centrality of Christianity is the cross. It's important to keep coming back to the cross of Calvary in absolute gratitude and thanksgiving, but also with a view as to what we as a body of believers learn and appropriate from this monumental sacrifice and accomplishment by one solitary individual on our behalf. So the cross is something that should be the center of our lives. It should never be forgotten. It's not a Sunday event. It's a a daily event. It's something we should always be thinking about. This morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I would like to share with you seven principles how we can appropriate as a result of Jesus Christ's death and suffering on the cross. Now, the cross is an empty cross. We also need to be aware of that too. So it's a resurrected cross. It's not Jesus on the cross. Some churches, you still see the figure of Jesus on the cross. I I think that's not a great um, interpretation of the cross because Jesus is no longer on the cross. But what he did on the cross, nevertheless, is something we should always be mindful of. So the first point I'd like to talk about is any sin is forgiven. Now, we can go into a lot of theological arguments about the sin against the Holy Spirit and things like that. I understand all of that too, but I'm talking in general terms. Any sin is forgivable. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. They then threw dice to divide his clothes. This is an amazing statement. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And often, in myself as well, we've all gone through trials and tribulations in ourselves. We sometimes can blame people, sometimes the blame is on us. But this statement is a statement we should all cling to. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. We need to show grace because God has shown grace to us before we show grace to anyone else. So always come back to the original statement of, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they've done. An amazing statement which reveals the heart of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In our pain, in our suffering, in our guilt, forgiveness is always available. But we need to understand that. C.S. Lewis once said that in our joy, we talk to God. In our pain, we, we, shout, in our pain, we, we argue with God. In our, in our deep suffering, we shout to God. So there are stages in terms of how we approach God. It should not be just in our joy that we acknowledge God. Just in our suffering, we acknowledge God. In our pain, we acknowledge God. We should be acknowledging what God has done all the time so we understand what it really means for God who suffered on the cross for us at Calvary. All it takes for forgiveness is true repentance of of our sins and acceptance of the personal sacrifice Jesus Christ made on the cross. So repentance is something that... It's very important to understand repentance. You know, grace is free. The grace of God is free to you and me, but it's not cheap. It came at a cost. So grace comes at a cost. The cost of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. So when we accept grace, someone else has paid for us. You and I might die for a friend, it says, but Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. So that is the forgiveness that we have on the cross of Jesus Christ. Christianity, past and present, is full of sinners saved by grace. The Apostle Paul, as a former persecutor of Christians, considered himself as the chief of all sinners. This was Paul, an immensely qualified man, considered himself the chief of all sinners. 
But after his conversion to Christ, he, he served as the greatest defender of Christianity and he died for his faith. In fact, it says that all the apostles, bar one, all died for their faith. If you go through the apostles and how they ended their lives, they all died for their faith. These were very weak men to start with. But the revelation of what Jesus Christ had done for them gave them this internal fortitude and courage that they even died for their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we are in the company of great men and women. We are not just in the company of ordinary people. I always tell my two sons, thankfully they are still continuing with God and serving in their own churches as well. Never be ashamed of Christianity. You may walk with emperors, you may walk with paupers, you may walk with people of no distinction, and you may walk with people with distinction, but always remember your Christianity has to be explicit, not hiding behind a bushel. Always remember what Christ has done for you and walk the talk and be a Christian, not in a, not in a loud way, but in a very humble, gratitude way of thanking God for what he's done for you. I'd just like to share two Two thoughts with you, which are really interesting, which I came across when I was doing my reading for this particular uh, sermon. The first one is, you've all heard of David Jones. Maybe the ladies more than men, but you've all heard of David Jones, right? David Jones was born in 1793 and died in 1873. He was a general merchant, a counselor, and a politician. David Jones is not only Australia's oldest departmental store, but the oldest departmental store in the, wo in the world trading under its original name. That's interesting, isn't it? But listen to what who David Jones was. Besides all of that, David Jones was a deacon of the Congregational Church in Sydney for some 35 years and a committee member of the Bible and Religious Tract Societies. He was a generous benefactor to his own and to other churches as well. So this man was a Christian. I've, I've looked at all these very famous people who have been prominent in society many hundred years ago as well. I looked at people, the fellows who started Yale and Harvard universities in America, for instance, and a lot of them were really Christians. And I may be wrong here, but Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher, was the, was the founder of Harvard College which is Harvard University, one of the major universities in the world today. And when you look at Jonathan Edwards' line of descendants, a lot of them are still continuing on in the faith. I can't say this for David Jones. Now closer to home, there's another man that you probably all know of, or you may have heard of the company, if you, haven't, if you don't know the man at least. Most of you have heard of Furphy's Foundry, right? The man who started Furphy's Foundry was John Furphy, he was born in 1842 and died in 1920. He was a farming machinery manufacturer, he was an inventor, and he was a lay preacher. With his piety and strong sense of duty, John Furphy was prominent in Shepparton affairs. The first religious service in Shepparton was held by the United Free Methodists in John Furphy's cottage behind his blacksmith shop in 1873. In 35 years of unbroken service with the Methodist Church in Shepparton, he filled every office open to a layman and was well known as an effective preacher. So these are just two examples of a bygone era that you know, we can look to. There are many, many more people that I can refer to. The man who invented the, bi the bionic ear is a professor at Melbourne University. His name escapes me right now. But the way the bionic ear was invented actually was through prayer. The people who, I'll, I'll find his name one day and come and ask me next Sunday perhaps, but the man, this particular man who invented the bionic ear was, couldn't, couldn't work it out. And people in the university called him a fool for even trying this particular invention. So eventually 
he went into his laboratory and he knelt down and he prayed. And God gave him an answer in terms of how he should work this bionic ear out. And the very first experiment he did after this prayer was a person he was experimenting on many times. And he said it was a miraculous revelation when this man said, I can hear you. You know, you think about that. You know, we live in a world where science, for instance, is almost negated, right? And, and we've handed science over to the secular realm. But John Newton and people like that and, and all, the, all the top people, you know, who were scientists many generations ago were all Christians who gave God the glory. You know, so whatever we do in life, we have to give God the glory for what he's done on the cross of Calvary for us. Our conversion to Christ must become our personal story. It must become our personal story. Although I've spoken about these many uh, eminent people, that is not the story. The story is my story. The story is your story. I love listening to testimonies. No matter how simple a testimony might be, it is still a testimony of God's favor and grace on on an individual. I'm often reminded by Jesus' words when he says, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That has really struck a chord with me. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. You know, we love to introduce people of great prominence or name drop people. How about name dropping Jesus Christ's name more often in our lives? Right? He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the person that we should really be name dropping more than I know Scott Morrison or whoever, I don't know Scott Morrison, but I'm just saying, we often like in secular company, name drop people. But do we ever name drop Jesus Christ's name? The name above all names, it says. So we really have to be gentle about it, not Bible bashing, but stand up for what what you're on about. You know, nail your colors to the mask. It's really important to nail our colors to the mask early in our Christianity. When we are working, wherever we are, you know, I tell my sons, I'd rather you be humble roadside Christian sweepers than be men of prominence in any society. Because at the end of the day, if you win the rat race without being a Christian, you become the chief rat. You know? So just be careful. You know, it, what we do in life is really, really important. You know, our, our, our first allegiance, our first thanks is to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to reflect daily on what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and tell our stories to others. This is a church where the gospel is constantly being put forward. Every Sunday I come here. And this happens, this doesn't happen worldwide. It's a very unusual thing these days for the gospel to be really promoted around the world these days, you know? And it's the only saving grace that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you to remember that our sins have been forgiven at a cost. Grace wasn't cheap. The next point I want to make is we are saved by grace and not through works. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, We are getting what we deserved but, but, but for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. So grace must always equal gratitude. Grace must always equal gratitude. Grace enables us men and women to see the way God sees them in all of creation. So when we look at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we must see, we must be grateful for their ministry. We must be grateful for their contributions in church. We must be also grateful for what Christ has done for us on Calvary. Many years ago, Billy Graham 
was at a conference and and he was just sitting around and a, and a minister came up to him and he said Billy you've, you've done amazing things in life you've preached to great congregations hundreds and thousands of people you've shared the gospel with he said when you get to heaven what is the question that you'll be asking Jesus when you meet him he said the first question I'll be asking Jesus is why me Lord he always had the spirit of humility this man served God into his late 90s and people who served with him like Cliff Barrows and all the other people who served with him all served into their na- to their great ages of 90 some even went into 100 and 203 years old but they always maintain a focus on the cross they always maintain a humility about themselves that's why their ministry lasted many 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 years and centuries they weren't just fly by night people they were constantly in the world you know, they, they, they believed that they had a gratitude, they owed a gratitude to Christ. And their ministry was imparted through this gratitude that they had on Christ. If you read his biography, it comes true and true and true that grace was his fundamental motivation in being the, sharing the gospel of Christ. He shared the gospel of Christ because Christ shared his, his life for him. So grace is demonstrated by the love that we have for one another and also for the ones we have. For the ones we have done us wrong. Not just for one, for the ones we love, but for the ones that have done us wrong. It says in the word of God, by the love we have for one another, the world will know us. The world won't know us by great sermons and great preaching. The world won't know us by all the other social services we do. Now all of that is important. I'm not denigrating any of that sort of stuff. But what is really important, the world will know us by the love that we have for one another. That the world will know us by the love we have for one another. I'm currently reading a book by Stephen McAlpine. He's a great preacher from Western Australia. And, and he said Christianity now is living on the margins of society. We used to be very much part of the integral part of society. No longer. His book actually is titled The Bad Guys. He said we are now, re- people are considering us the bad guys. You know, and that, what he's meaning, we're not bad guys, he said, but basically he comes back to scripture and he basically is saying, how will the world know us? The world will know us that we are people that will walk the extra mile, turn the other cheek, give our coats to people. And that's how the world will know us. Even while they are trying rotten tomatoes, as they're, so to speak, our response will be one of love. That's what Jesus is saying. By the love for one another, the world will know us. That's why Jesus could say on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't think I could make that statement. You know, I really don't think I could make that statement. But I ask God to show me in a minute way how I could make that statement when I come across such, you know, such uh, objections. So William Booth, the founder of... The founder of the Salvation Army said, go for sinners and go for the worst. Right? So the Salvation Army in many ways today has become a social service organization and they do a great job. But their foundation wasn't about social services. It was about go for sinners and go for the worst. That's why he stood outside the pubs of England and he took their particular songs and he turned it into great Christian anthems so that he could reach the people in those, in those halls and dance halls and pubs and so on he went for sinners and he went for the worst because why he understood that gratitude is a debt that he couldn't pay but nevertheless it was a debt that he owed like the old song says 
The next point that's important when we look at the cross is the family is the most important unit. The family is the most important unit. So when Jesus, when, so when Jesus saw his mother and the, and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her into his home. And that's a pretty powerful statement when you listen to that statement of what Jesus said. He didn't abandon his mother Mary. He looked at his disciples, the disciples that Jesus loved, is known as the disciples John. But what he said to his disciples, Behold, now this is your mother. I go to the Father, now you have a responsibility for my mother. And that disciple took on that responsibility and took her into his home. So family, from a Christian perspective, needs to be seen in two ways. First, there's the family unit that we belong to, our own immediate families. More and more, these units are being isolated from each other, and even within families, isolation and loneliness has come a commonplace, even within families. We see this when families become dysfunctional. Often at the core of the problem is there's no responsibility for each other. Husbands, wives, children all have responsibilities to each other. There's a mutual obligation in families. It's just not mom and dad responsible for the family, but as the family grows and matures, there is a responsibility from the teenage years into adulthood that you need to be responsible back to your parents, and parents need to be responsible to their wives, their husbands, and to each other. It is in this context that Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He entrusted his mother to his disciple, who was now responsible for her welfare. Secondly, the family of God is evidenced in the church family. So there's two ways of looking at the family from a cross's perspective. One is your own family, one is the church family. There is a responsibility to our families and to our church family as well. We don't belong to an organization, we belong to the family of God. I've heard the modern CEO and I've read books and things like that. A pastor even said to me, the church is a business, right? And I'm the CEO. I find that quite an amazing statement. The church is not an organization and we are not CEO. Can we implement and use good organizational principles in churches? Of course we can. We can have good accounting practices. We can have good policies and procedures. We can run things very professionally. But let's not the vehicle become the main event. Right? These are just vehicles. But when the vehicle becomes the main event, you've got problems in a church. Right? Because the church is not that. The church is a family of believers. That's a fundamental responsibility of the church. And we need to stay in touch with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Loneliness is of, a, loneliness of endemic proportions in Western society. I'm reading a lot about loneliness. I don't know why, even before I prepare this sermon. Loneliness is of epidemic proportions in Western society. In the UK, they have even appointed a minister for loneliness to deal with the societal problem. So that's how people are seeing it now. Because we are becoming dysfunctional, you know, the caregiving that traditional institutions like churches used to give is breaking down. We're not a Sunday club. We're a family of God. We need to be involved in churches. Let me encourage you to be involved in a connect and grow group, for instance, if you're not already involved. Ask people to come into your homes. Ask people to share a meal. It doesn't have to be a gourmet meal. It can be a cup of tea and a biscuit, right? And you'll be amazed at how many people are lonely out there. They just want a bit of fellowship and company, you know, on a regular basis. So we are a family. The next point I want to make is faith will survive the worst times. Our faith in Jesus Christ will survive the worst times. The object of our faith 
is not faith itself. That's where people get it wrong. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. The author and the finisher of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's not faith itself. A lot of Eastern religions, a lot of meditation practices and so on will be just use a mantra or use something else. That is not Christianity. Christianity is faith in a living God and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, one time someone said, is Christ the surname of Jesus? <laughs> you know, I thought that was quite amusing actually. You don't think about it. But in the world they think, John Smith, Jesus Christ. No, Christ is the anointed one. That is who he is. So he came into the world anointed by the Father. So when you think about that, Jesus is the common name. It's used in South American societies. Jesus is a very common name in, in South America. But Christ isn't. Christ is the anointed one. So faith will survive worse times because our focus is on the anointed one. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus through a terrible, had a, went through a terrible time of doubt. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, if it's your will, take this cup from me. It wasn't just, you know, walking in the field singing hallelujah. It was a very, they say he had, his sweat was like drops of blood. You know, that's what it says, like drops of blood, not blood. But Jesus went through terrible times of doubt, where he even asked his father to take this cup away from him. But in obedience, thankfully, he never abandoned his ministry of going to the cross. It is not wrong to doubt. And many times we doubt, but never stay in a place of doubt. We all go through what theologians have called the dark night of the soul, right? And the dark night of the soul is when we have great doubts because we will be confronted with terrible things. As I look forward, there's less to be looked forward, and I'm not being bleak here, that's life. You know, there's only so many years a man lives, and so many years, but when you look past, I like to look past sometimes, and I like to go back, and I like to count the blessings, Count the blessings, name them one by one, and you'll be surprised as to what the Lord has done. The old Sunday school hymn. Right? So one day I went home and I looked at my blessings and I wrote down all my blessings. And I didn't go to huge blessings about career achievements and things like that. I, looked at, I wrote down simple things in my life and I compared it to people in persecuted nations. I looked at clean water. Because I asked some of my African friends, I have a few African friends, I asked my African doctor friend, I said, what are some of the things that you feel blessed about when you came to Australia? She said sanitation, clean water, right? Electricity, non-violence, right? We have all those things in our society, right? And you think about it, we take for granted a lot of the common things that other individuals, for instance, do not take for granted. So let me say to you, count your blessings, name them one by one, and you'll be surprised as what the Lord has done. You know, so when we go to hard times, think about the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Who can? The monumental suffering. That is a revelation of the cross. So overcome your doubt with faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through regular reading of his word. Encourage yourself in his word when faced with life's trials. After the night, the morning will come, it says in the Psalms. And I've added this a little bit. After the night... The morning will come and the sun will appear, S-O-N will appear. Not the sun, but the sun will appear. 
So our suffering, it says in the word of God, is but momentary. It's but momentary. And when you look at life, look at it from an eternal perspective. We can be caught up in the here and now. And more and more people are asking us to live in the moment. Yes, it's all right to live in the moment and be thankful for the moment. But the moment is momentary. It is not forever. Live in eternity, I say. You know, live in eternity. At the Christian school that I was involved with for many years, the motto was a fantastic motto that one of the office staff actually came up with that motto, which we adopted. And it was educating children for eternity. What a great motto that is, educating children for eternity. And we have to educate ourselves for eternity. Because in the here and now, there will be pain, there will be suffering, there will be problems, there will be things that go up and down in life. You know, there will be moments of great joy. Janet had great joy last night because Ash Barty won the Wimbledon, right? And she stayed up and she watched the whole thing. And in the morning she told me I wasn't staying up. And she said, Ash Barty won the Wimbledon gym. She was really excited about that. That's great moments of joy. But this afternoon, maybe something else might happen. Who knows what happens in life? And we have to be open to the ups and downs of life. But the consistency in our life is that we have the faith which survives the worst of times. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in your heart the Lord is everlasting strength. Isaiah 26, 3-4. This verse has encouraged me many, many times throughout my working life. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in your heart the Lord is everlasting strength. That is not to say it's been easy. That is not to say that at all. But when your focus is right, you can go through a lot of the things. Psalm 23 is another one. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my rod and my staff comfort you. You know, so that's the verse, Psalm 23, most people have been in churches, know that very well. So these are the encouraging verses we turn to. You know, there are a lot of professionals that can help us sometimes you need to see a psychiatrist you need to see a Christian psychologist and things like that but fundamentally get back into the Word of God so that your faith will be strengthened and it will be encouraged and the fifth point I want to make is it's okay to express your hurts after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said I am thirsty after this Jesus knowing that all was finished said I'm thirsty a jar of full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of sour wine and on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit what an awful thing to do to a man who's absolutely on his last dying breath giving him sour wine to drink but you know you and i can substitute i am thirsty with I'm angry, I'm violated, I'm abused, I'm mistreated, and I'm hurting. Never deny your feelings. Recognize them and deal with them truthfully and constructively from a biblical perspective. Don't put your feelings or hide them. That is hypocrisy, and that will come home to hurt you. Denying your feelings is the worst thing. Don't blurt it out to every man and his dog that comes along. Take it to the foot of the cross. And understand that Jesus, when he said, I'm thirsty, he also was violated. He also suffered a great deal from the people who persecuted him. He recognized his physical hurts. He recognized his, his emotional hurts that he suffered. 
That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew what was to come. And so similarly, when we are faced like this, we need to understand that it's okay. It's okay. But as Christians, that's where we become important. That's where we become standing shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So gather around people who will help you. I've got some great mentors. You know, I've got some good people in my life. They're not people that have high intellect or anything. They're just people who will say, what's wrong? Can I pray for you? Can I help you? Some are in this town, some are not away from it. Not, not many people. My father, who was a Christian all his life, said to me, if you can count your friends on one hand, Jim, you've got too many. <laughs> really interesting. If you can count your friends on one hand, you've got too many. He had a lifelong friend who lived in another country, but they corresponded every month with, with them. You know, and I got to meet this man eventually. You know, my father never got to meet him because he died after I met him. But the loyalty of his friend was amazing. And we need to have that type of friendship, particularly men, need to have friendships that are binding, long-lasting, and helpful to one another. Not crying on each other's shoulders all the time or making use of friends. That is not what is important. You know, it's not like that commercial I used to see on, you know, on on an ad, in, an agricultural ad said, John's very good because he's got a boat, Henry's very good because he's got a lawnmower, and so it went on. And, and all his friends had something to give him. That's not what friendship is about. Friendship is a two-way street. You need to be very much part of that friendship as much as we are. So as body of believers, you and I are the hands and feet and the heart of Jesus to those who are hurting. We can replicate the kind words and works that Jesus did through our unique personalities by helping others. Because Jesus will one day ask us, Jim, I remember on the 11th of July, you preached a great sermon in the church. Right? Come into the kingdom, Jim. Come into the kingdom. I remember that sermon. That was wonderful. He will count it all nothing. What he will count for all of us is not that. He won't count all of that. He will appreciate what we did for him. But this is what it says. So we have to go back to the Bible. Jesus one day will ask us, where were you when I was thirsty? Where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was tired? Where were you when I was homeless? And where were you when I was lonely? It's the same question our community in Shepherd asks of us. Individually and as a church. What will our individual and our corporate response be to those questions? There are many in the church who are doing good. There are many in this church who are doing good. The word of God encourages us never to tire of doing good. For in due season we will reap. Our eternal reward awaits us in heaven. You know, sometimes we get nothing out of this world. If you don't believe me, read the second part of Hebrews. All of those people died and received absolutely nothing. You know, but that's encouraging to see there. So we don't look for rewards now. We look for our rewards, which is in eternal heaven. But it's good for Christians, nevertheless, to understand these principles and encourage one another. It says, as the day is long. Encourage one another as the day is long. When Jesus said he was thirsty, they gave him sour wine. Are we providing sour wine or are we providing the bread of life to our family and to our community? Faith, hope and charity does begin at home, but does not stop there. Faith, hope and charity begins at home. And does not stop there. Because I've seen people neglect their families for the sake of church as well. And that's not right either. You know, you must care for your own family.
families because in the Bible it says care for your family. But I've also seen people in churches that are so introverted. It's only me and Jesus and my family and no one else matters. That is not church. It is both. You know, the community and the family. And then the sixth point is there's a time to let go. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said this, he breathed his last. Self-preservation is diametrically in opposition to the Bible's injunction to die to self daily. The Bible calls us to die to self daily. Scripture encourages us to take up our cross and to die to self daily. We need to understand this die to self daily concept. It's very seldom promoted in the church universal. This is a time to refocus and let go of our hurts and injustices. We've become a society which is so much about me. You know, many times I've sat in churches even, and I've listened to sermons that are motivational sermons. It's all about six ways to success, or eight ways to achieve your goals and things like that. This is not Christianity. There's nothing wrong in achieving your goals and having success in life but not at the expense of your brothers and sisters in Christ, not at the expense of others. For instance, if you were given a promotion and it had meant you had to go to another part of the state or another part of Australia, and, but you were a key member in your church, maybe you should go, but maybe you should also pray and see God's will that you should be where you are. And sometimes we sometimes... Don't listen to God. We make decisions on our own. So dying to self has very practical implications as well on a daily basis. We do so like Jesus by committing our ways to the Lord and asking him to direct our paths. Jesus committed his spirit to the Father. In all your ways, direct your paths, is said in the word. You know, in all your ways, commit your ways to God and he will direct your paths. That's from Proverbs. So we must commit our ways and not devise ways that will take us to grandeur, but devise ways that are according to the will of God. Remember that all our troubles are but momentary. Everything we do, all the troubles are but for a moment. We are pilgrims passing through a very brief life on our way to eternity. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, I ask you to buy it for your children, even if you don't read it. It's a wonderful book, right? It's the second most read book after the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. It was written by John Bunyan, who suffered greatly and wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail. So read it. It's, it's really a great book. It's a wonderful book in terms of traveling light in life. You know, we need to travel light. Hurts, materialism, consumerism, selfish ambitions can all weigh us down in life. Regularly do a stock take of your life. What emotional baggage are you carrying? Ask God and Christian friends to help enlighten your load. Don't struggle on your own. You know, as we as we get older, as we get older, the the least the, we don't need much. You know, you know, my mother-in-law is now in a nursing home, right? And she's been a very very generous lady right throughout her life. You know, first a nice home, then a retirement villa, then a nursing home. But every time she moved, she said, "I've got to get rid of this. I've got to get rid of this. I've got to get rid of this." And finally, when she went into a nursing room nursing home, one room, one, one cupboard where you can hang your clothes, one little TV, one chair, you know, and it took us half a morning to move her there, you know. So what that indicates to me when I was doing all of this, because I've moved them a couple of times, I thought to myself, how much physical baggage do we carry in life? 
What emotional baggages do we carry? Unforgiveness, you know, hurts, whole range of things. So try to travel light, you know, try to travel light. I can't remember the song, others I might sing it for you. Many years ago, Ricky Nelson sang a song, Traveling Light. So some of my older friends would remember it. Doug's shaking his head. So that's good, Doug. We'll sing it later together. Okay, so finally, my last point is, finally experience fulfillment by faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus, when he received the sour wine, when it's all over, he bowed his head and said, it is finished. When we truly identify with Christ as dead on the cross, and say with conviction that it's no longer I that live it, but Christ that lives in me, our attitude to life will take on a new focus. As Paul said, it's no longer I that live it, but Christ that lives in me. And Paul, amongst all the sermons that he preaches, this is famous, his famous sermon, he says, is, I preach Christ crucified. That was his sermon, I preach Christ crucified. And that's all, he built on that sermon, but it's important for us to understand that. So what is life about? Life is a long obedience in the right direction. Life is a long obedience in the right direction. You can have obedience, but your obedience might be in the wrong direction. So let me encourage you that the direction of your life has to be Christ-centered. And it's a long obedience. We will fall. I've fallen many times. But don't stay where you have fallen. I've had doubts many times. But I try to overcome my doubts. I'll have new doubts. I'll have new failures, but I always try to look at the direction of my life, which is called the path of sanctification. This long obedience is called the path of sanctification. Simply put, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ day by day. So we need to become more and more like Jesus Christ day by day. But we don't do it in our own strength. Again, I'm encouraged by the verse in the Bible where it said, I am the vine, he is the vine and we are the branches. So we need to stay in, stay in him, which is to stay in obedience to his word. Without him we can do nothing and with him we can do all things. So we need to stay focused on Christ because his word says without him we can do nothing. With him we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as long as it is in his will. So we don't do foolish things. You know, we do sensible things. You know, many Christians I've come across over the years do foolish things and then think it's the will of God. You have to be in the Word of God. You have to take counsel from Christians who are older than you. And you have to pray about the decisions that you make. Don't make reckless decisions. Because reckless decisions will get you into trouble. So in conclusion, I once again emphasize the seven points I've made. Any sin is forgivable. We are saved by grace, not through works. The family is the most important unit. Faith will survive the worst times. It's okay to express our hurts. There's a time to let go. Experience fulfillment by living by faith in Jesus Christ. So let's pray as we finish now. And I hand over the communion message to Gerhard when I finish. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word to guide us and to protect us. Holy Spirit, help us to be true to your word by being obedient to it, by bringing our lives in line with it. I ask this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, once again, in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person. 
but consider yourself invited to be with us.